Don't you love and appreciate Pastor Mark and Brenda? Amen. Some of the best people anywhere. Uh, it's a real joy to preach and teach tonight um, on the topic of qualified. And uh, people have often wondered, well, what, what is this about being qualified? And, you know, does that only apply to preachers and, and things of that nature? And the truth of the matter is, um, we are called to be representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ in the earth. Whether you're a preacher or never step behind a pulpit, we're called to represent him. I have discussions with people quite a bit about different translations of the Bible. And, uh, you know, which is the best translation and is this translation okay? What about this paraphrase? You know, I've had several conversations about that in the last couple of weeks. But the fact of the matter is, uh, D.L. Moody said that, that, you know, of people in the world that one of them will read a Bible but 99 of them will read a Christian. Yeah. And so, uh, are you a good translation of the Bible? Yeah. I say that real loosely. You understand how I say that. I don't mean, you know, I am the Word. You know, no, I, I don't mean that. But, but, but we are, it's, it's been said that we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. That we are the only Jesus that some people will ever see. And uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 5.16. He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So what happens if the world never sees our good works? What happens if uh, what the world sees um, from Christians is... Uh, you know, bad attitudes and complaining and and uh, worldliness and that type of thing. You know, what would it, what would it be if the world were to look at a bunch of Christians and after watching them for a little bit say, you know, if that's what being a Christian is like, I don't I don't want to have anything to do with that. You know, it's said uh, that Mahatma Gandhi, you know, the great leader of India, uh, had interacted with some Christians, but he had studied the life of Jesus. And he was so impressed with Jesus. But, and he said to some Christians, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. And does our life commend ourselves? Uh, does our life leave a good impression, a good taste in people's mouths? Um, Jesus said that we were salt and light. And, you know, we know what light does. It illuminates, but salt is, it provides taste and uh, uh, pres preservation and so on. So uh, what, what about Christians' lives? Um, and so, you know, when we stop and think about the word qualified, uh, I'll be getting on a plane tomorrow, flying up to um, uh, Edmonton, uh, Canada, Alberta, Canada. And, I mean, I fly all the time. And... I just assume that the pilot is qualified. How many of you have had to take your car in for work this year? Yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe more than you wanted. And uh, you hope that your mechanic is qualified. Uh, anybody made any trips to the dentist lately? You know, you trust that that guy with the drill, hopefully he doesn't have one, but if he does, you trust that he is qualified. And, you know, when we think of people in those fields and air, airplane, airline, mechan uh, airline uh, pilot, uh, 
a dentist, a mechanic, that type of thing. When we think of their qualifications, what we're primarily thinking of their their technical skills, right? Their knowledge, specific uh, skill sets. We don't we don't really think about you know are they nice to their kids, or do they tithe, or you know things like that. But when it comes to Christians, qualification is not so much an issue of technical skills. You know, did you say praise the Lord just right? (laughs) Qualifications for believers boils down to character. Do we represent Jesus well? Does our life reflect the fruit of the Spirit? There's an old story that goes back, you know, way, you know, decades ago where a preacher had moved to Houston, Texas, and he was assuming the leadership role, the pastoral role of a church. And he wasn't really right in the downtown area. He was out a little ways, and he did not know Houston well. And apparently he had to go downtown to transact some business, being a new resident and so on. And and he just thought, well, instead of driving, I'm just going to take the bus so that I can, uh, you know, I don't have to. This is before GPS. How many of you thank God for GPS? And um, so he didn't want to mess with traffic and knowing where to turn and where to park and buildings and things like that because he had to go downtown. So he just, I'm just going to take the bus. And uh, this is back in the day. I'm assuming today everything is by some kind of card or digital something, something on your phone. I don't know. But um, uh, this is back in the day where you got on and gave the driver some money and he gave you change and things like that. So this uh, new pastor in town uh, steps onto the bus, gives the uh, bus driver some money. Uh, Bus driver gives him some change and he goes back to his seat and uh, looks in his hand and he says, the bus driver gave me too much change. Maybe, I, it wasn't much, it was just like maybe a quarter extra. Uh, but, and he, he just puts it in his pocket. He's sitting at the back of the bus and he's thinking, uh, well, you know, I should give this back. And, and then he says, oh, I don't, you know, the bus driver doesn't care. I mean, it'd just be a nuisance to him. to." And, and he, he, he's debating all the way down to his stop downtown about, should I give the money back? Should I keep the money? Should I give the money back? And, you know, I mean, it's only a quarter and, and, and all this. So uh, he gets off the bus at his stop. And when he gets off the bus at his stop, he starts to walk away. And all of a sudden, just conviction hits him. And he turns around, he catches the door, the bus door, as the bus door is closing, the driver opens it up and he steps up and he says, here, you gave me a quarter too much. And the bus driver reaches out his hand and smiles a little bit and says, thank you, pastor. And, and it caught the pastor by surprise. And, uh, and, and he said, you are the new pastor in town, aren't you? And he says, yes. And he says, well, he said, honestly, he said, I gave you too much change on purpose. I wanted to see what you would do. He said, I've been, he said, I was raised in church, but he said, I've been away from church and away from God. And I just wanted to see what you'd do if I gave you too much change. And he said, I appreciate you, you know, giving that back. I'll see you in church on Sunday, Pastor. And, and the, the guy drove off and the pastor kind of thought, man, I, I almost sold out your son for a quarter, you know. Uh, people, 
people don't really pay attention so much to what we preach. Uh, in some cases they do, but, but sure, people sure uh, pay attention to how we live. And, you know, we, we think of this in the context of preachers and, you know, we want our pastor to live right and we want our pastor to do right and things like that. But honestly, uh, God wants every Christian to be an honest person, you know, to be a, 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 a caring person, to be a virtuous person. Um, I'll tell you this, when you look, really look through the Bible, um, many, many of the people that God used were not preachers. And yet he looked for the same internal character, integrity in their lives. Um, uh, give you an example, Adam was not a preacher. How many of you know that? Adam was a gardener and a security guard. How many of you know Adam had two jobs? He was bivocational. He was a gardener and he was a security guard. God put him there to cultivate the garden and to protect it. Abraham was a tribal leader. Uh, really, today, what we would call a CEO of a corporation. Uh, at one point, we know that Abraham had more than a thousand employees in his company, as it were, using modern terminology. Joseph uh, was, he was a slave. He was a, uh, prison warden. Uh, he became a government official. Joseph wasn't a preacher in the traditional sense of the term. Daniel, we know he wrote a prophetic book, but Daniel worked for the government. Um, Nehemiah was a government employee. How many of you know we need godly people in government? We need godly people in business. Uh, Luke, was a physician. How many of you know we need godly people in the medical field? Uh, Lydia was a, a very successful businesswoman. Paul, you know, we know, of course, he was a preacher and he did plant churches and write books and so on. But, but Paul consistently worked in the marketplace. Paul was a leather worker. We call him a tent maker, but a, a tent maker was simply somebody who worked in leather. And uh, so were Apollo, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, rather. And even Jesus spent six times longer as a carpenter than he did as a preacher. Uh, Jesus spent three years preaching, but he was a carpenter from the age of 12 to the age of 30, 18 years I'm not very good in math. We were talking about that and talking about some of our subjects in school that we didn't necessarily excel in. And, and I was reporting some of my bad grades in math. But I know that 18 divided by 3 is 6. And so Jesus spent six times longer as a carpenter than he did as a preacher. Now, how many of you expect preachers to be honest? But don't you appreciate it when... Business people are honest. And, and as a Christian person, uh, we are called to a standard of integrity. And I just can't imagine, you know, the Bible says in Mark 7, 37, the Amplified Bible says about Jesus. Now, it's talking specifically about his miracles. It's, it, it, you read it in the regular Bible. It says he, he has done all things well. But the Amplified says he has done everything excellently, commendably, and nobly. 
There was a standard of excellence to which the Lord Jesus Christ was committed. He did everything excellently, commendably, and nobly. And while that does refer to specifically the miracles that he did, I want you to stop and think about what kind of a carpenter do you think Jesus was? Do you think he made somebody... uh, tables and chairs and stuff, and and they got delivered to the house, and man, they're just wobbling and uneven and, you know, and that type of thing. And and imagine they went to Jesus uh, and said, Jesus, you know, you made these chairs for us, you made these... uh, these ta- this table for us, and man, everything's unsteady. It wobbles and that type of thing. And gee, well, just you know, that's just the way it turns out. Sometime, I just think Jesus did it right, and and he was committed to integrity in his life, and there was nothing in his life uh, that would have taken away from. Um, the, the message that he brought. And this is really what we're talking about in this general subject of qualified is it, it's really about... Now, let's just establish that. How many of you know we're all imperfect? How many know we've all missed it? We've all, you know, and James even said, you know, we all miss it in many different ways and things like that. Uh, so I'm not te- teaching here sinless perfection that you're you know, going to get to a point where you just never, ever, ever make a mistake and that type of thing. But uh, there should be something in our heart that, God, I don't ever want someone to look at me and say, if that's what being a Christian is like, then I don't want anything to do with it. I, I want my uh, character to uh, attract people, not repel people. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, Titus chapter 2, verse 6. To me, this is so powerful because 1st and 2nd Timothy are what we call pastoral letters. And pastoral letters were written to pastors, Timothy and Titus. And uh, it's amazing how practical these books are. Uh, There are things that we would call spiritual truths, like, you know, what about the verse that says, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. How many of you think that's kind of cool, that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places? That is a truth that we call a positional truth. It's our position in Christ. But what happens if a Christian is seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, that's their spiritual position, but they're living like the devil here on earth. Okay? So so we want to embrace uh, not only the, the positional truth of the Bible, but we want to walk in practical truth in our lifestyle. See, in the new birth, we have life. But through sanctification, we have godly living. And so Titus chapter 2, verse 6, in the New Living Translation, it says, As for you, Titus, uh, did I say that right? Yeah, Titus 2, 6, As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Now, and, and I know there's a discrepancy here. There's two different, there was an early version of the New Living and a later version. I think I've got the, we've got different versions here. Let's just read theirs. Let's just read the one on the screen. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. Uh, 
let's go ahead and go to, you know what, I'm in the total wrong area. Um, let's go to verse 1. I, this is totally my bad. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. My notes are, are wrong. So that's why I was... Uh, no, I don't need my book, but thank you. It's right in there. As for you, Titus, here we are. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. To me, one of the worst doctrines is when people say, well, you know, you're already forgiven, so it doesn't matter how you live. It matters very much how you and I live. The way we live should reflect wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men uh, to live wisely. And you yourself, now he's talking to Titus now, you yourself must be an example to them. You must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized, then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Do you know what Paul is doing here? He's setting a standard for a Christian lifestyle. He's basically saying, if you're, a, if you're an older Christian man, here's a few thoughts about how you should be living. If you're an older Christian woman, here's how you should be living. And there's this understanding uh, throughout the New Testament that we are representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to imitate Christ. We're, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And that means that our, our lifestyle... Our character, our, our words, our attitudes should be different than that of the world. Uh, so let's, let's look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to be in the New Living Translation again. And I'm going to start in the right verse this time. Uh, sorry about that confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 And we're going to get directly into this issue of what it means to be qualified. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, in the New Living Translation, Paul says, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So what are these next four words that Paul says? So run to win. Run to win. 
Pastor Mark and I have teased a little bit and joked and laughed a little bit about, um, you know, our backgrounds in sports and things like that and people we know that are really competitive and, and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, Paul apparently had something on him, in him that was kind of competitive. He talked about in a race, you know, everybody runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to, to win. And, and what we have to really define here is what does it mean to win? What does it mean to win as a Christian? Good. What does it mean to win as a church? How, how many of you know we're called to be victorious, right? Yeah. But, but what does it mean to win? Um, when we think about the world definition of win, win means that I beat you. Is that what Christian winning is about? No. I beat you. No. In the Christian race, you're not racing against your brother. No. You're not racing against your sister. The only person you're racing against is your own potential. Because when I stand before the Lord, and I will stand before the Lord, and you will stand before the Lord, and, and He's not going to ask me, did you do what I called Billy Graham to do? Right. He's not even going to ask me, did you do what I called Mark Thomas to do? What the Lord is going to ask me to do, ask me is, did you do what I told you to do? So running to win does not mean that we're in competition with other Christians or other churches. Did you know that other churches have different callings and assignments than what you do? Different churches have different assignments and different areas of emphasis and different, you know, and some churches kind of get competitive and, well, what's this other church? And if, if somebody else is doing something, then they get, you know, insecure about it or, you know, uh, that type of thing. Uh, there's so, how many millions of people are in this Bay Area? Several million, and, and God needs, you know, different kinds of churches that have different kinds of emphases and things. I mean, He wants every church to be exalting Jesus and preaching the gospel, but different churches are going to have different assignments and different outreaches and different emphases and things like that. Uh, the, the challenge for Heart of the Bay is not to try to compete with some other church, but, but to walk in, God, what have you asked us to do? What's our assignment? What, what are we to do? So Paul says, run to win. So there should be this competitive thing, not competitive against any other Christian or any other church, but competing against our own potential. God, am I fulfilling what you've called me to do? And then he goes on to say, all athletes are disciplined in their training, they do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. Isn't that something? You know, I mean, there's many worthwhile earthly achievements and endeavors and things like that. And, and there's certain rewards. You know, you get a reward when you go to work. You know, you work and you get a paycheck and things like that. And, and um, there's so many things we do on an earthly standpoint that there's a certain benefit or reward for, but um, we do it, what, what our efforts, what our race is, is oriented toward is to uh, ultimately receive and achieve an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. So if you're going to be qualified... 
you know, we, we get qualified for one thing because we have a purpose. You know, for that airline pilot to be qualified to fly that plane, he didn't just wake up one morning and was qualified. He had, he had to have a purpose to become an airline pilot. That mechanic, that dentist, you know, there, there was discipline, there was training. They applied themselves to acquire skills that would enable them to be qualified to do what they do. The same is true with the Christian life. Uh, Paul used the, the idea of an athlete. Nobody ends up on the gold medal stand at the Olympics with a gold medal around their neck while their national anthem is being played. And they say, well, how did I end up here? I didn't know I was in the Olympics. I'd, no, they've been training for that for years. They had a goal. I mean, and they made sacrifices. And, and, and so how many Christians really have a, a, a godly ambition to be everything that God has called them to be? And how many of us, honestly, just we find it easy just to coast, just to go with the flow and, and, and without really, number one, having a purpose and applying ourselves to that. Paul said, uh, I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing or going through the motions would be another way to, uh, 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 you know, illustrate that. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be, what's that word? Disqualified. Paul says, Paul, the apostle, says, I, I discipline my body like an athlete, tra training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Can I tell you something? When I was a young Christian, I didn't read this in the New Living Translation. It probably didn't even exist. And I read it in the King James. And thank God for the King James. But... Um, it, it said, um, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be cast away. And as a young Christian, every time I would read that, you know, I was just coming out of, you know, uh, having not really been a devoted Christian. And, and I remember in particular, um, I, I need one of these T-shirts that says, the older I get, the better I was. Uh, but but I, I did play competitive tennis, played at the university level, and played tournaments and so on. No, nowhere remotely close to a professional level, but, you know, just at a university level was okay. And uh, But I had played for years, and that was when John McEnroe, um, you know, I think he and I are about the same age, and Jimmy Connors. Anybody remember Illy Nastasi? You know, and, and these guys, you know, some of them just had bad attitudes and a lot of us younger tennis players unfortunately got a little bit caught up in that and uh, before I got spirit filled and and serious with God right after I graduated from high school but I was playing tournaments that summer and I was brand new spirit filled but I didn't forget all the old words immediately okay yeah some of those words would come out and 
And man, I, I would read, you know, and I'd, I'd say these words, you know, when I hit a bad shot or something. And, and I said, I'm not supposed to talk that way anymore. I felt bad. And, and Lord, forgive me. And, and then I'd, I'd open my Bible and read these verses like, you know, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You know, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I, oh God, I know I'm going to be lost. I know I'm going to lost. And then I'd turn over to 1 Corinthians 9 and Paul says, I keep, I keep my body under subjection lest after having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And I thought, oh, you know, God, I said some cuss words and I, I, please don't cast me away and, and things like that. Well... If God, if we'd lost our salvation every time we said or thought or did something wrong, it, it'd be a, we wouldn't have a very secure relationship with Christ. And um, I'm not in favor of cussing. But um, how many of you know sometimes it takes, you have to get your mind renewed and um, you have to get your flesh kind of trained, keep your body under and don't, don't be flesh ruled, carnally ruled. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 9, here's something I think that's really important to understand, especially since we have this really powerful statement. Because let's be honest, we don't want to get disqualified, do we? No. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is not talking about sonship. He's talking about servanthood. He's really talking, if you read 1 Corinthians 9, the whole theme of this chapter is Paul saying that he laid aside many of his personal rights and privileges as a believer so that he could be effective in reaching others for Jesus Christ. When he says, lest I be disqualified, he's not talking about losing his sonship. He's really talking about losing his witness. He's talking about losing his testimony. He's talking about losing his credibility. That's really what um, Paul is talking about. Now, when we talk about the call, uh, so many times we think about, well people being called to preach. And, and we expect a lot from preachers. You know what? Um, we should. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I'm going to tell you right now, the minute that you step into a higher spiritual role, people are going to judge you more harshly. James said that in James chapter 3, verse 1. He said, a lot of you really shouldn't become teachers or spiritual authorities because as such, you will receive the stricter judgment. To whom much is given, much is expected in return. And, um, I mean, you stop and think about it in a family. You know, when a baby is born into the family and that baby is months old or maybe just starting to crawl or whatever... Um, you know, you don't think anything about it when that baby, you know, throws its cup of Cheerios on the floor or messes its diaper and things like that. Um, you know, but, but if, if, you know, the person is 24 years old and they're still throwing their Cheerios <laughs> around the kitchen, something's not right. You, you understand what I'm saying? And um, 
there, there are things that are expected, you know, as, as we grow and mature spiritually. Now that, you know, we always want to be gracious and merciful to one another, but we also have to understand the world does not judge us by our positional truth. They don't care. If you went up to them and said, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly place, they don't know what that means. They don't care. What they're, they're, what they're wanting to see is, are you nice to other people? Are you kind? Are, are you patient? Are you loving? Are you, uh, you know, encouraging? They're, they're looking at the fruit of our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And again, Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven so what this means is when the world sees good fruit good character good words good attitudes coming out of us they're inclined to look favorably at god but if they don't if they see bad fruit bad character bad words bad actions coming out of the christian they are going to say well, if that's what being a Christian is like, then I don't want anything to do with it. And I'll tell you what, we do not want to be individuals that are a stumbling block to people who could otherwise come to God. You know, one of the things that Jesus said, and, and I mean, this is heavy duty. This is, you know, very, very serious stuff. But Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble... It would be better for you that a millstone were hanged about your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. I think it was C.S. Lewis said, it, it is a serious matter if I alienate someone from Christ. Some really powerful things. So, so we tend to think of the calling and the responsibility of preachers, but, but I want to impress on you tonight that every single one of us has a calling to be a godly husband or a godly wife, a person, single or married, a single person who will have godly influence with their neighbors, with their co-workers, with their friends, someone who will be a productive worker or leader in the church. And every single one of us has the opportunity and the privilege of, of re representing Christ well in all of these cases. So the point is that uh, when it comes to allowing God to influence us on the inside, I don't know, I, don't, I never hear this song anymore. I'm not saying it should be sung, but that, I, that old kind of cute song, I've got something on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. I mean, every, every believer has that responsibility to say, God, you know, I don't just want to believe the right things. I don't want to just say the right words, but, but I want to be the kind of person that would really um, radiate a positive witness of, of your love and your character and that maybe somebody could look at my life and say, wow, I, I kind of want what, I want what they have. Peter said, um, trying to think of the verse, if it's 1 Peter 3, 15, 14, uh, I can't remember exactly what the address, but um, uh, Peter said, always be ready to give an answer 
to, to people who ask you about the hope that is on the inside of you. That's really something. Do our lives uh, convey a joy and a peace that would cause other people to say, man, what, what, what's, what do you have? You know, on the other hand, if they see us lying, steating, steating, lying, I got cheating and stealing mixed up. That's the condensed version of the Bible. Quit your steating. That's when you cheat and steal at the same time. If they see you lying, stealing, cheating, and all that type of thing, they don't want what you have. I mean, that's, that's junks everywhere. They don't want, they want something that's, that's pure and that's godly. Now, one of the things that I want to really reemphasize is that being qualified is not the same as being perfect. Um, I said this and I'll say it again. Uh, God has only called and used one perfect person in his entire, uh, in the entire history of humanity and, and really the people that God has chosen. Um, Many times we have to understand this, that, uh, uh, you know, I, I like this statement. God doesn't call the qualified. Yeah. He qualifies the called. Yeah. Yeah, like Moses was a murderer. <laughs> David committed adultery and murder. Uh, we see all these people. Gideon was so insecure and inferior. He said, God, you can't you know, use me. Peter, you know, I, I never met him and, you know, I never knew him. Denied Jesus and, and things like that. And, um, you know, the first time that Jesus and Peter really encountered, had an encounter, uh, Peter ended up saying, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. You know, John wanted to call down fire from heaven on people. James did too. Saul was a terrorist. I mean, Saul of Tarsus terrorized Christians and threw them in jail and participated in at least the, the murder of Stephen, the first, you know, um, uh, martyr of the church. Mark himself, uh, his first ministry experience, he was a quitter, you know, and things like that. And I, I just say this because... Um, when, when you start talking about a standard for Christian behavior, standards of holiness, standard, the devil is going to flood in and say, yeah, see, you don't qualify because you and everybody knows that you did this and that type of thing. Listen, if it weren't for the mercy of God, none of us would even have the remotest of chances and God loves to take people who feel like they're unqualified. Jeremiah felt he was too young. Sarah felt she was too old. Isaiah said, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. He must have played tennis too. Pickleball. I've never cussed playing pickleball. Paul said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, and let's look at this from in the New King James Version, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. How many of you 
found that even though you've been forgiven, you can mentally recall some bad things from your life. We, when Paul said forgetting the things that are behind, he, that, he doesn't mean amnesia there. Your brain wasn't really meant to... I don't believe that forgetting, when Paul says forgetting the things that are behind, I don't think he means that you uh, somehow erase that memory. Because Paul said forgetting the things that are behind, but he himself, when he gave his testimony, would talk about how he had persecuted Christians, right? So he's telling you to forget what's behind, but... He hasn't forgotten what's behind, unless we look at possibly a little bit different definition. What if Paul did not mean amnesia? But what if he meant when he said forgetting what is behind, what if he meant don't let the past dictate or govern God's future for your life? Intellectually, you know it, but it doesn't dominate you anymore. And, and actually what happens is you have been so impacted by the grace and the mercy of God that instead of your past failure becoming a tombstone, it really becomes a stepping stone. Because you know that it's only by the grace of God that you've been able to move beyond that. That Satan wants to tell you that you are forever damaged, that you are forever branded and incapable of representing God when the truth of the matter is, in spite of your past mistakes, failures, flaws, and shortcomings, you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and His mercies are new every morning. And you know, and I like what Brother Hagin used to say. You, you probably heard him say this several times. I traveled with him when he taught ministers' conferences, and um, he would go through the list in First Timothy chapter 3. A bishop, meaning that's a church leader, an overseer, a pastor. A bishop must be blameless. And he'd go through this list, and, you know, having a good reputation of those outside the church, and, and you know, just all the... I mean, this list, and... And, and he would paint this list and, and then, and, and people would start saying, well, man, I'm not, uh, I, you know, uh, and, and you could tell everybody was getting uncomfortable. And then Brother Hagin, I've got to go back and find exactly what he said because he either said in 40 years of ministry or whatever, 50 years of ministry, whatever it was at that time, he said, I've only met, it was either two pastors that met these, this list of qualifications or it might have been none. I, I need to go back and find that. But he's talking to 500 pastors, and he's saying, I've only met so many pastors, like one or none, no, no more than two, that have met the qualifications for ministry. And, it, and you just sense everybody just kind of, oh, my gosh. I'm not. And, then, and then, brother, he, he had this way of, of letting you just suffer. <laughs> He just, he just, he just paused. He had tremendous time. He just let people sit there and just squirm, and then he'd say, "Now, if you don't qualify, don't quit. Just work on qualifying." 
Isn't that good? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, in the Ampl- I'm sorry, in the New King James, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, is that who he is in Christ? That's not who he is in Christ, but that's who he is naturally. Did you know that you are something naturally? I mean, history is history and reality is reality. But thank God that who you are historically is not who you are redemptively. I'm somebody redemptively that I'm not who I was historically. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that amazing? In one sense, he says, I'm the least of the, I persecuted, you know, this is his historical reality. But now he steps into redemptive reality. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Isn't that something? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. Did you know it is possible for God to extend grace to you and you let it go to waste? You don't respond to it. You don't cooperate with it. You don't yield to it. When God gives you grace, which is His power, His ability, and things like that... You need to say, thank you, Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to cooperate yes. with you. And, and notice what he says, but I labored more abundantly. Yeah. This, it's okay to work on these things, but don't work on your character. Don't work on your attitude. Don't work on your integrity. Just in your own human natural strength, let God do this deep and profound work on the inside of yeah. you where your character is literally... Uh, transformed by the the spirit of the living God. And, um, you know, he helps clean out some of those old attitudes or dispositions or whatever. And um, you become not just a, a positional new creature, but you begin to practice new creation realities in your relationships with others. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in the New Living Translation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. This is something that to me, when I teach on qualified, I want people to understand, and maybe part of this, I need to share with you my background. I when I was on staff at Rama, one of the things I did, I did it for about 13 and a half years. I directed Rama's ministerial association. That means we had 2,400 licensed and ordained ministers under, you know, in a part of our organization. Pastor Mark and Brenda, they were some of our regional directors. So anything pertaining, what do you have? California, Nevada, Nevada, Hope. 
Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, Nevada at one time. This is the apostle of the West Coast right here. This is the archbishop, the guy, the bishop by the bay. And um, so, uh, but I remember one time, uh, this is kind of, you know, nobody will know who this is, but a pastor in a totally opposite part of the country had been involved with another woman. And uh, um, it got exposed, public and that type of thing. And, you know, I was just sharing with him about how, you know, brother, um, you know, forgiveness is, is available but trust is something else. How many of you know forgiveness is a gift that is given, but trust is something that is earned? And I said, you know, one of the qualifications for uh, bishops, elders, according to 1 Timothy 3, is that you must have a good reputation of those outside the church. I said, brother, you don't. You must be blameless, above reproach. And I just went down the list, and he had disqualified himself. And I said, now the Bible does talk about restoration. But I said, your ability to you know, minister effectively uh, in this community, in this local congregation, is you know, people need healing. You need to focus on healing in your own relationship, healing in your own soul, healing of your wife and your children and, and things like that. And I remember another, another young lady told me her dad had been a pastor in a totally different situation, and, and he had gotten off track. And she said, you know, um, I, I'm so conflicted because, number one, I love my dad, but he's two people said he's one person in the pulpit and he's another person at home he said there's no similarity between he's got this public persona this public image and see his his ability to uh have credit trust is the currency of ministry some people think in order to be a minister you have to be a great preacher and you got to have all these gifts and things like that but if, if people don't trust you and, and, and I know some people just want to operate by this mantra. They just say, well, just trust me. I have a rule in life. I never trust somebody who tells me, just trust me. As a matter of fact, if you want me not to trust you, just come up to me about something that's out. Just trust me. Because I immediately say, I don't. Our responsibility is to be trustworthy. I have to earn your trust. I can't demand anybody's trust. And we earn trust through consistency. We earn trust through consistent godly behavior and things of this nature. Let's close with this verse before the break. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5 in the New Living Translation. Paul says, it is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. So don't ever think, well, I've read the Bible through 50 times, therefore I'm qualified. If qualification is all based on your own personal effort, then you're missing the real qualification that matters our qualification is from God. 
God, by His grace, enables us to be the kind of person that is trustworthy, is respectable. And can I tell you something? Sometimes the most, the thing that we can do that exhibits the most character of all is when we can go to somebody and say, you know what, I was not a good example. Would you forgive me? I, I, I you know, I said some things in that meeting that I, I shouldn't have said and, and uh, I, I disappointed myself and I just want you to know that I'm sorry for being offensive in what I said. And don't, don't give one of those, <laughs> well, I'm sorry if you were offended, you know, you, you own it. One person said, if I can't be an example in how I live, I'm going to be an example in how I repent. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. And look at the next verse, verse 6. He has enabled us to be ministers of His new covenant. He has enabled us to be ministers of His new covenant. So we have this amazing privilege and adventure and challenge before us. We serve an amazing God. We serve a a wonderful Savior. And most people are going to arrive at their conclusion about the God we believe in, not based on what we say about Him, but how we live from Him. Do we, and, and, and how many of you know, none of us have been perfect at this, so how many of you know there's no condemnation? I, I echo what Brother Hagin said. If you don't qualify, don't quit. Don't get under condemnation. Just work on qualifying. Work on making the adjustment so you can be a good witness, a good example, uh, so that your life can make the gospel right. attractive. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to have another 50-minute session in a few minutes, but I want to mention real quickly a book that we have. This is the newest book uh, that we have. It's called In Search of Paul. And years ago, we came out with a book called In Search of Timothy, and uh, everybody would always say to me, uh, well, why don't you write a book about In Search of Paul? And I would say, because I don't have anything to say about that. No, I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. And then finally, I got something to say about it. So this is a book about how to, just like Paul mentored Timothy, um, this is a book about how we can let the greatest spiritual leaders of all time be our, our spiritual coaches, our, our mentors, and we quote more than 50 great spiritual leaders, how they coached the young Christians that were being trained up under them and the young ministers that were being trained up under. So this is like getting personal coaching from Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Pastor Mark Thomas. I mean, just, oh, did I say Pastor Mark Thomas? Amazing leaders. To talk about the word qualified, let me give you a name and see if you recognize, see which Bible scholar here can tell me who I'm talking about. The name Malchus. Malchus. Thank you, Raul. The one who got his ear cut off by the Apostle Peter. Malchus, the high priest's servant. Now, stop and think about this. Let's just paint a little scenario. 
Peter, you know, means well. Uh, he's trying to protect Jesus when the soldiers try to apprehend him. And um, uh, he, he, Peter grabs his sword and swings it and cuts this guy's ear off. And that had to be really traumatic. And uh, Jesus does two things. Number one, he tells Peter, Peter, put the sword up. He didn't mind him having a sword. He'd, already, he'd asked him earlier, do you all have any swords? And they said, yes. He said, okay. Um, but he said, Peter, put the sword up. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And then what's the second thing Jesus did? Picked up the ear and put it back on and healed him. So I think Malchus was probably two things. I think he was really impressed with Jesus but he probably really didn't like Peter. <laughs> now, seriously, just think about this. If you're Malchus and this, this wild-eyed guy... And I'm going to tell you, can I tell you something? Peter was not aiming for the ear. Peter was aiming for the head. And he just happened to duck and got his ear cut off. So... How many days later was it? Uh, 50 days later on the day of Pentecost? Maybe 51, I don't know the exact math. Uh, he sees Peter preaching. I'm using my imagination. I'm assuming that Malchus could have been in the area when Peter gets up and preaches about the love of God. Do you think Malchus could have had a little bit of problem with the messenger? I mean, the Bible doesn't give us any details, so we don't know. But wouldn't it have been amazing if Malchus had been in that crowd and sat and I know that guy. You better watch out for that guy. He's, he's you know. And, but then maybe the Holy Spirit began to work in his heart. And he said, but I know the man he's talking about. And could he have been won over? Can you think about how hard it would have been for Malchus to have received the, the word from Jesus? Now, Brother Hagin said something very interesting. He said, many times uh, the people that are most difficult to lead to the Lord are the members of your own family. Did anybody remember Brother Hagin saying that? Yeah. And he said, because they know you. They know you according to the flesh. And so sometimes it's hard. And, and that's why Brother Hagin said, uh, sometimes the most effective. Now, you can lead relatives to the Lord, and that's wonderful when you do. But but if for any reason there's something in your life that just makes it hard for them, even just the familiarity thing, he said the most effective thing you can do is to pray for laborers to come across their path who they can listen to if they can't listen to you. So here's what I want us to, to learn from Malchus and Peter. Peter could have been totally qualified according to Jesus but not in the mind of Malchus. There can be situations where maybe somebody has seen something in our life, even if it's not true, 
you know, maybe they've heard a rumor. You know, I have all kinds of pastor friends that have had the wildest and craziest rumors about them that are, I know are not true. And somebody who believes that rumor, well, I couldn't, I couldn't listen to them. I couldn't receive from them. So in a sense, we can be unqualified when it's not even fair. But Peter, what, what if Peter had found Malchus a couple days before that? couple days before Pentecost and said, I recognize you. And he goes, yeah, I recognize you too. But what if Peter had said, look, I am so sorry. I, I was so wrong. And, you know, and what if he had apologized to him and, and could, you know, here's the thing. God's called us to be bridge builders, right? You ever burnt a bridge with somebody? You ever lost credibility with somebody? If, if, if a bridge can be burnt, what is the possibility that bridge could be rebuilt? Why do you think Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers? They shall be called the sons of God. So we want to understand this qualified thing is not an absolute thing. Uh, Peter was qualified as far as Jesus was concerned, but Malchus may not have been all that interested in hearing what Peter had to say. We just don't know. But let's look at Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21. Exodus 18 verse 21. Qualification, you know, what, what qualified Moses to lead uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Somebody talk to me. What, what qualified Moses? God qualified Moses. You know, he had a major blunder in his life. And, uh, you know, Mo, uh, Moses probably felt he'd been disqualified, and maybe in a sense he was. But God said, you know what, Moses, I know what you did, but I'm going to requalify you, and uh, I'm going to put my spirit upon you and things of that nature, and I've got this big assignment for you to do. So Moses starts to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, it's a massive assignment, a massive calling, but Moses was at a point of complete and total overload. And because he was trying to do so much. And um, Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, New King James, let's look at that. Exodus 18, 21. Uh, Moses is instructed, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men. That word able means competent. Moses was to look out amongst the congregation of the people and find able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers. Isn't that a powerful statement? Rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and rulers of ten. So there's organizational structure and so on. But notice when there were positions of responsibility that God didn't just say, well, you know, just take volunteers. Now, there, there's a place for volunteerism. Don't misunderstand me. There's a place for that. But when it comes to strategic positions of leadership, let's look at that list again. There were requirements. Select from all the people able, competent. Number one, you have to be competent. Fear God. 
men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them. So we see as early as Exodus chapter 18, qualifications. Not everybody qualified to be in those positions. All right. So uh, we begin to see this kind of uh, process taking place. Let's look at uh, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Let's look at that in the New Living Translation. Again, you have a situation where there's too much work to be done. One person can't do it all. We know we expect Moses to be qualified. But, but God told him, you need to find other people who are also qualified and gave him a list of what these qualifications were. And then in the book of Acts, who qualified the apostles? Jesus qualified them. Jesus trained them. Can I tell you something? They weren't qualified on day one, were they? They were kind of a train wreck on day one. They were more like the Keystone Cops at the beginning. They, uh, you know, they were doing all kinds of, you know, let's call down fire from heaven and destroy people. Let's get rid of the children. We don't want the children around here. Jesus, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we told them to stop. Um, they were just kind of, they just, you know, they were good-hearted people. I don't want to put them down. I mean, I'm going to have to stand before them in heaven. I don't want them to be waiting on me and say, look, punk, just, we heard what you said about us at Mark Thomas's church and don't appreciate it. Yeah, watch out for the ear. Um, but you know what? The Bible, the Bible tells us about their mistakes because if we if if we had the idea that those apostles just were perfect that they just walked around like this all the time and halo and everything they were they were in trouble all the time peter was always opening his mouth and sticking his foot in and 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 really the reason we love peter so much is because we think god if he made all those mistakes and, and you could love him and use him, God, maybe there's hope for me. That's really one of the great lessons of the apostles is that if God could use them, if there's hope for them, there's hope for us. So, so the apostles were qualified by virtue of Jesus training them, teaching them, instructing them. Uh, so we come to Acts chapter 6, verse 3, and the apostles now need help, just like Moses was overworked and needed to have some people help him. So the apostles say, And so, brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Isn't that interesting? You know what leadership is really about? It's not about authority. It's not about bossing other people around. Leadership is about responsibility. Res being responsible. You know, a lot of people, like they might come into this church and see Pastor Mark or Pastor Brenda or one of the other staff up here preaching. They, wow, that's, you know, I'd sure like to preach at this church. 
yeah, you'd like to preach at the church, but do you want the responsibility they carry? People, people don't, unless people have been in pastoral ministry or, um, you know, just have some degree of very close association, they don't know the pressures and responsibilities that come, you know, with this. Uh, and so they didn't just select anybody. They selected people. What well, First of all, they had to be well-respected. Yeah. Well, where does respect come from? Respect doesn't come from somebody saying, I demand you respect me. Respect comes from living respectably. When people see in your life that you're genuine, that you're sincere, that you're honest, that you treat people well, that you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, that if you mess up, you, you know, humbly apologize and things like that. You don't have to be perfect to be respected, but, but you need to be genuine. And, you know, you need to be faithful and dependable and all these different characteristics. But they, they wanted to find people to put in positions of responsibility who were well-respected. And notice this, and full of the Spirit. Isn't that important? And then also full of wisdom will give them this responsibility. Now let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're talking about qualifications. Qualifications. 1 Timothy 3 1. Now, how many of you know qualifications are different for different positions? The qualifications for Pastor Mark are different than the qualifications for someone who's cleaning the building. Now, don't misunderstand me. Cleaning the building, is, how many of you know that's a good ministry? My wife and I spent nine months cleaning the church building when we were first Bible school students. And I'm telling you, God taught us more about ministry in the ministry of helps. But it's one thing if the you know, custodian does something, you know, it's a little bit wrong. It's another thing if the pastor does something. Right. The, the higher up you go, the more people expect, okay? 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, I'm not here tonight to go into a lengthy discussion about what does that mean by bishop? Because how many of you know every different denomination uses terms differently? Deacon can mean a thousand different things to a thousand different people. Bishop can mean a thousand different things. So I'm just going to tell you this. The Greek word here is episkopos, which means overseer. Now, you can debate, does that mean the senior overseer? Or does it mean somebody who oversees a department? I'm not going to get into that with you. I, I, I think there are times these are somewhat nuanced. But if you desire the... I'll just say it this way. I think this is a fair paraphrase. If you desire a position of spiritual leadership, okay? Uh, you desire a good work. A bishop, an overseer, a spiritual leader, then must be blameless. Well, what does that mean? You've never done anything wrong in your life. Well, if it means that, then we're all... Forget it. 
Forget it. But, but, you know, somebody who's scandal-plagued, somebody who's got constant accusations, you know, things like that, probably wouldn't be considered blameless. The husband of one wife. Now, should I, should I mention, comment on this? Are you okay if I comment on this or whatever? You know, some people have taken this to mean that, uh, I mean, if you read this in a certain way, you could think, well, if somebody's wife had died and they remarried, well, they're not even qualified. And, and of course, people jump on divorce. I've been married for 43 years. I'm not divorced, so I'm not trying to cover anything in my life. But I've known people who are really, in my opinion, innocent victims in a divorce or even people who contributed to a divorce but through spiritual growth and, and, and that type of thing went through a period and, and uh, uh, you know, maybe remarried and, and God still used them in wonderful ways. And so, I mean, I know this is a touchy, sensitive area, but in the Greek language, this means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, you could have a guy who's been married to the same woman for 50 years, but they're Mr. Flirtatious with everybody. They're, you know, hitting on women and things like that. And I'm just, I've only been married once. Yeah, but you're flirting with everybody else in, around. You're not a one-woman man. This means you're faithful to your one wife. So... Temperate, which means self-controlled, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable. Now, keep in mind this word hospitable uh, has to do with, in the Greek, it's a love for strangers. Uh, but keep in mind, when Paul was writing this, many of the early churches were meeting in homes. They didn't have buildings yet. Yeah. Uh, number one, they were often the targets of persecution and sure. and that type of thing. So, um, you know, if you if you were going to be a church leader, uh, most of the time, if you're a church leader, they're, they're probably gathering in your house. Right. And so, if you just don't like people and don't like strangers and don't want to, you can't be a spiritual leader if you just you know that type of thing. Uh, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice. Do you know what a novice is? What's a novice? Somebody new to the faith, in the Greek word, it's a new plant. A new plant. Not a new plant, not a young, immature believer. And, and why don't you want a, a, a really brand new Christian? Now, that doesn't mean they can't come out for a church work day or they can't pitch in and help in different ways. But this is talking about a leader. Okay? Why don't you want a brand new, immature Christian in a position of leadership, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil? 
Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, meaning not part of the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So uh, these are the criteria that the Apostle Paul gives to the church, to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. Now, you know, people have to work these out, but how does this apply to us today? I have a pastor friend. um, I think Pastor Mark and Brenda may know who I'm talking about. One of the best, most wonderful, godly men that I know of. And... um, he, he was pastoring, again, on the other side of the country, and his 17-year-old daughter got pregnant out of wedlock, and he and his wife were absolutely devastated. And he consulted with me. He consulted with other people that he, you know, looked to for some spiritual direction. And he was really seriously, th- he said, I-, I don't think I qualify for ministry anymore. My 17-year-old daughter got pregnant out of marriage. And I told him certain things, and other people told him. And here's what I told him. I'm not trying to be hyper-technical about this, but the word children in the Greek language here is uh, uh, meaning a a, a very young child. It's it's not a mature child. Did you know that in this culture, uh, you know, people were married very young. Uh, girls would marry, you know, marry the Virgin Mary. Uh, she may have, uh, you know, become betrothed to Joseph when she was 13 or 14 years old. One of the societal issues that we have in Western civilization is that we have prolonged adolescence. And um, it, just, it creates a lot more potential problems. And uh, there's a totally different Greek word uh, other than the word that's used here for children. Uh, There's a totally different Greek word that's used for a son or daughter come of age. And um, so I just shared with him, I I said, you know, I know you guys are devastated. Your daughter needs a lot of love, a lot of support right now. And, um, you know, anybody that wants to throw stones at you and and condemn you, I said, you know, they should be ashamed of themselves because every parent, you know, probably, you know, unless you just somehow got a couple little robots or something like that, um, you know, you've probably been through some bumps in the road with your kids. And if you didn't, God bless you. Pray for the rest of us, you know. Um, because kids, especially as they get older, they can make some decisions that, uh, you know, are totally opposite of what we taught them, trained them. But that doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It just means, I remember when a couple came into my office when I was back on staff at Rama. And uh, this couple had a 21-year-old daughter who had gotten pregnant. And this mom and dad were, I mean, devastated. And um, they were just, you know, uh, completely overwhelmed. And, and, and they were just saying things like, we just don't know what we did wrong. We just don't know, you know, we thought we had trained our daughter well and things like that. And, and uh, after a little bit, I said, it sounds like you're blaming yourself for this. And... Uh, they said, oh, of course. And I, and I said, so you think it's your fault? And they said, well, yeah, obviously we did something wrong or our daughter would have never made that wrong decision. 
And uh, I said, well, who was the first parent anyway? And they said, God. And I said, his kids messed up. I said, where did God go wrong? Because obviously, if God had been a good God, they wouldn't have made the bad decisions that they made. And I mean, their eyes got open. I mean, how many of you know that other people have a free will? And uh, I'm all for being an attentive parent, uh, involved parent, a caring parent, and things like that. But if you think that you can control your kids forever, it's going to be tough. So do you see the qualifications? Now, see, this is the list that Brother Hagin went through and um, said he only knew one or two pastors at the most in 50 years. He only knew one or two pastors that met that, these requirements, you know, perfectly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and everybody was just kind of, oh, man, then I sure don't. And, you know, everybody's thinking, well, I lost my temper this time or I did, said something and it, you know, didn't ref, you know, reflect well. And, and Brother Hagin said, if you don't qualify, don't quit. Just work on qualifying. Now, <laughs> yeah. oh, you keep going here a little bit. And 1 Timothy 3.8 says, likewise, or in a similar way, uh, deacons. Now, again, the word deacon can mean a million different things uh, in a million different churches. But a deacon is simply a servant. Uh, one who serves. It's from the Greek word diakonos. And um, they must be reverent, you know, respectful. Now, here's an interesting Greek word, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. What does that mean? I think it's dialogos in the Greek. It means they say one thing one time and something totally different another time. Uh... I won't tell you who the pastor was, but one of my pastor friends, uh, it's not in this state, uh, one, one of my pastor friends, one of my pastor friends was at his office and somehow he was stepped out of his office for a minute. He came back and there was a voice message on his phone. And when he picked up his phone to see what the voice message was, uh, he starts listening to it thinking, and he's, oh, it's from my assistant. And oh, my assistant's calling me to tell me something. And when he picks up the phone, it's his assistant's voice, but his assistant had pocket dialed him, shall we say? And the assistant was driving his two teenagers to to, to, to school before he came to the church. And uh, so he did not know that his phone had somehow called the pastor's phone and that he was leaving a message. And when the pastor puts the phone to his ear, he was saying to his teenage boys, he's saying, yeah, I don't know why the pastor is so stupid. He said, uh, I mean, we, he said, he says that, I mean, his number one, his sermons are horrible. And uh, he makes the dumbest decisions. And I mean, he went on, I mean, he just reamed the pastor out 
for until the phone message shut off. And so the pastor thing, okay, well, we have some interesting dynamics here to work with. And so this associate shows up at work just, you know, whistling down the hall and all that type of thing. And the pastor says, you know, whatever, Jim, come on in here. I don't know what his name was. He said, Jim, come on in here. I want to talk to you a minute. And I said, have a seat. And he just said, how are things going? And and are, are you enjoying, you know, your position on the church staff? You're about to not have it. He didn't say that. He just said, how are you enjoying your position on the church staff? Oh, yeah, pastor, man, what a blessing. What a blessing to work here. This is just the greatest church. I, there, there's no other church I'd rather work at than right here. And, uh, and the pastor said, ah, Jim, I'm so glad to hear that. He said, now, let me ask you a question. He said, how is it working for me? Oh, pastor, you, I just can't imagine working for any other pastor than you. You are the best pastor. I get, I mean, I get so much from your messages. I get so fed. And I mean, and this guy is just laying it on thick. And the pastor said, man, I am so glad to hear that. He said, I, I have something on my phone I want you to hear. Now, this guy had no idea that his phone had... And so he, he just turns the phone around, hits the button on the voice message, and he starts listening to it. And I mean, the blood just drains out of his face. And he's just... And, and within a few seconds, he's just doing this. And um, how many of you want to guess that that was probably his last day? And, and you know what the pastor told him? I thought this was really good. He said, you know, if you'd come to me and told me that it's a challenge to work for me, he said, I would have understood that. He said, I'm sure I'm not, I, I'm, I don't do everything right. And, you know, uh, you know, we're all learning, we're all growing. But um, he said, let me tell you what bothers me more than anything else about this whole ordeal is the way you just poisoned your two boys. It doesn't matter what mistakes I've made or not. It doesn't matter how good of a preacher I am or not. But you just taught your boys that it's okay to ridicule, mock, and denigrate a spiritual leader who is doing his best to love people and lead people. He said, do you think your kids could ever receive from my ministry after they heard you talk about me that way? He said, you know, and, and he did. He fired him, you know, right then. But he said, um, you know, you need to find a church where you can be respectful yeah. and not do not poison your boys. Do not poison your children against a spiritual leader because God may use that spiritual leader if you don't poison them to, to really make a, an impact in your boys' lives. And so, but, but when the Bible says, if you're going to be a servant, you can't be double-tongued. You can't say one thing to somebody's face and then... Can I tell you what the word integrity means? Integrity. I told Pastor Mark and Brenda on the way, we were talking about our academic backgrounds, and I told them that when I was in high school, I got a D-plus in algebra. And a D, not boy, not B as in boy, D as in dog. 
I got a D plus in algebra and a D plus in chemistry. So, yeah, thanks, Raul. I, Raul is really encouraging me here. He said, at least it's a plus. Thank you, Raul. You care to talk about your report? Um, I have to love you because you're taking me to the airport. So I'm going to give you a, a, a mathematical thing. So I, I didn't get this because I was smart in math in school. I got this because I studied it much later in life. And uh, I, I want to know what is integrity? What is integrity? And I found out that the word integrity comes from a math term, integer. Do we have any math teachers in here? Any math teachers? Good, I can act like I'm smart. Okay. Um, an integer in math is a, a whole number. Two, five, twelve. In other words, it's not 2.3. It's not four and a half. As soon as you put a decimal point, 2.4 or five and a half, it's no longer an integer because it's no longer a whole number. It's now divided. It's fractionalized. And the word integrity comes from the word integer because a person of integrity is a whole person. They're not half this and half that. They're not one foot in and one foot out. They're not saying, oh, pastor, you're so wonderful. And then behind the pastor's back, you know, crucifying him. Integrity means that it just means you are who you are. And you don't put on false fronts and you don't, you know, you don't act one way at one time and one way another. See that young lady that said, my dad, you know, he's a pastor, but he's one person at home, but he's another person in the pulpit. See, that's not integrity. That's not a person who's a whole person. You know, and you, you begin to think about all these scriptures about a double-minded man or double-tongued. Okay? So integrity... Uh, a servant, a deacon, must not be. He must not. He must be reverent, respectful, not double tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now, notice this: that the bishop had to be apt to teach. The bishop is typically going to be a fivefold minister that ability to minister, teach the Word. But there's nothing about the deacon being able to teach. But they do have to hold the mystery of the faith. Um, you know, they have to embrace the essentials of the Christian faith in their heart. Now, notice this in verse 10, but let these first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons. See, sometimes we put... Now, Now it, you're having a, a church uh, clean up around the building day. And you're going to give people trash bags and rakes and different things and go around. Well, listen, you could have somebody that just walked in the church 
and isn't even saved, but just wants to hang out with people. I mean, during COVID, uh, we had a deal, uh, a pastor I know, um, they, uh, the pastor, his wife, and a couple people um, were at the church on a weekday. And this guy walks in off the street and he just says, uh, is there anything I can do? And uh, they said, well, we're here. They're painting some walls or doing some cleaning, just some general maintenance around the church. And he said, I live in an apartment. This is during the shutdown where you couldn't go to any restaurant. You couldn't assemble all these things. And he said, he said, I, I'm just having trouble being alone all the time. He said, I, I just need to be with people. Can I help? And, and they didn't say, well, do you subscribe to our tenets of faith? <laughs> they just said, sure, here's a paintbrush or here's a vacuum cleaner or something. And, and he worked with them and helped them for a few hours. And, and he visited, you know, he kind of worked with the pastor and they visited and all that. And at the end of the day, or at the end of their time together, he said, he said this, there's something really special here. He said, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I've needed this. Well, that's, you know, that kind of thing is very much an entry-level thing. But Paul said if you're going to be a deacon, which means it's more of a formally recognized position of service, be like either the, the, the head of a department maybe, or it could be, uh, you know, just somebody who serves in an official capacity. It says, let these first be proved. In other words, you don't just let anybody do whatever. Um, like I say, there's a few things anybody could do, but higher positions, platform positions, people need to be tested. Uh, one pastor I know, uh, he told me this. This is something that was communicated to me personally. They were really desperate for a certain, I don't know, a certain female singer on the platform and... I don't know, alto, soprano, I don't know what it was in their mix, but they really needed somebody. And this lady shows up and she's, I'd like to sing. Oh, please, here's a microphone. And boy, they just put her right on the platform. And um, she just, I mean, she was good vocally and all that type of thing. But man, she started exhibiting some real problems. And man, she just couldn't get along with anybody and was offending everybody. And, and so the pastor said, you know, well, we're, we're going to need to have you step down a little bit until we get some of this worked out. And when she said, if you make me sit down from the worship team, I'm leaving. And uh, he said, well, you know, listen, we can't have all this strife. We can't. She said, well, I'm leaving then. And just so you'll know, I never did like you. I never liked your preaching. And the pastor says, well, why did you come here? And she said, because I thought I could get on the platform. Let these also be tested. Then let them serve, being found blameless. See, they didn't test her. You know, what does testing mean? Well, it, it could be just something as simple as you watch them for a while. They want to be on the platform, help make them serve away from the platform and see how they do there. 
you know. Um, I have pastor friends. They've had somebody come into the church brand new. Pastor, if you ever need anybody to preach from the pulpit, I'm available. And the pastor says, well, you know what? We, uh, we kind of have the pulpit covered, but man, we need somebody to clean the bathrooms. Oh, I can't do that. I just... I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher. A lot of times, the way we qualify for maybe a higher area, what we think is higher, I'm not sure God thinks it's higher, but, but something that is more influential, something leadership-oriented, uh, is by being faithful in something that is behind the scenes. Let these first be tested, and then let them serve. Uh, likewise, uh, being found blameless, likewise their wives, or that could be deaconesses, must be respectful, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their households well. So there are so many other things that we have in the book, um, the book Qualified, that's going to be out on the table afterwards, that what I've taught you tonight is just like 3% of what's in the book. It actually, uh, I taught a course at Rama that was 24 class sessions. And that material is what went into that book Qualified. So I gave you two sessions tonight, and it... You know, it's from a book that was based on 24 50-minute sessions of teaching. But let me just, uh, you, you know, Paul talked about uh, on being qualified. He said, the grace that was given to me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. This is something that we cooperate with the grace of God. God is the one who qualifies us. And let me just share a couple thoughts as we get ready to close. One person said this, you make your decisions and then your decisions will make you. What are some decisions that you need to make if you want to be qualified to serve God? Make it your determined effort not to grow lax or sloppy in your morals, your values, and your convictions even if other people around you are that way. Don't let yourself simply go with the crowd when their values and morals are lacking. Embrace the highest and the best that God has for you. Don't let His Word be a book of ideals to you from which you can selectively and occasionally live but let God's Word be the fullness of the commandments that are to govern your life. And uh, when you look at the Word of God, perceive these things as commandments. What is a commandment? A commandment is an order given by one in authority from which there is no retreat and about which there is no choice. If God tells me to be holy, I am going to be holy. If God tells me to love, I am going to love. And, and uh, we don't do that in our own strength. We, don't, we, we constantly humble ourselves before God and say, God, without you I can do nothing, but I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. Remember this, that Daniel did not stumble into integrity. The excellence of his character was deliberate and intentional. Let's close looking at Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 in the New King James Version. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. It says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now you can go into all the other things about, but but not only did Daniel keep himself pure from the king's delicacies, but but from the the occultism and the paganism of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel stayed pure because he purposed in his heart to be pure. And that's why God was able to continually use him because he did not allow himself to be corrupted by the corrupt environment around him. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the privilege, the honor of sharing with uh, the folks here tonight. And Lord, we, we stand here understanding that uh, in ourselves, not one of us is qualified, but you qualify us by your grace. You've called us to do things that we can only do by the ability of God. And when it comes to holiness, when it comes to love, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, when it comes to integrity, this is not something that we just in the flesh try to conjure up. But Lord, we invite the Holy Spirit to live big through us and let the new creation thrive on the inside of us, energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And like Paul, we say, I keep my flesh under, lest after having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. God, we don't want to be disqualified. If there's anybody here that's feeling that way, Lord, thank you that there's, if there's disqualification, thank you that there's requalification. And so, Lord, just help us to be good witnesses. Help us to be light and salt. Help us to be uh, competent representatives of the love of God and the nature and the character of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.